Welcome to the Action Research Podcast, somehow the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. Thanks for tuning in. Now, on to your hosts. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Action Research Podcast. We are going to just jump right in. We are so excited to welcome back a couple guests that we had on an earlier episode of the Action Research Podcast, where we spoke about systemic action research. Today, we are welcoming back professors Danny Burns and Marina Apgar from the Institute of Development Studies. How are you both doing? Thank you so much for coming back on. Very good. Very happy to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. The pleasure is on our end. And just a couple of things before we jump in. First of all, if you have not yet listened to the first episode that we recorded with Marina and Danny, the Action Research Podcast on Systemic Action Research with Marina Apgar and Danny Burns, please go back and listen to it. Um, a lot of the discussion today is going to build off of a discussion that we started a little while ago, actually during the pandemic. So with that said, during our last conversation, you offered some really amazing insights and on stories about systemic action research. We were talking about it from a theoretical lens. And then you were also telling us about your systemic action research project, the Clarissa Project, which has which is a very in-depth, robust, important action research project. It's systemic on many different levels. And today we want to continue hearing from you all about that project, how it's evolved since we last spoke, some of the insights that you've gained, some of the findings that you're starting to recognize, and some of the activities that you've been participating in to share with our audience. Joe, I didn't even have a chance to say hi to you. What's going on, man? How are you? Hey, everybody. Hey, Adam. Good to be with you all. All is good here. Looking forward to talking about uh, the Clarissa Project. Thank you again so much for coming on. Marina, you want to kick Let's us off on. with like a brief introduction of the project? Yeah, very happy to. Clarissa is a large project for an action research project funded by UK Aid or um, FCDO which focuses on the worst forms of child labor. So it focuses on understanding and responding to the drivers of the worst forms of child labor. Its main implementation modality is action research. And that's something we talked about in the, the first episode, no? that we think about action research as a way in which we engage with the issue of child labor. Um, working in Nepal and Bangladesh, working through a consortium of partners. So IDS is the lead of the project. Um, and we have partners who are specialists in child participation and child advocacy working in the two countries. In each country, we focused in a particular supply chain or in the case of Nepal, it's what we call a human chain. So working in the adult entertainment sector. So children who are working in dance bars and in the sex industry, etc. And in Bangladesh, working with the leather supply chain. So children who are working in, in neighborhoods where a lot of the leather 
is processed in both in urban settings, so in Kathmandu in Nepal and in Dhaka in Bangladesh. And over the last five years, we've been working with children and other stakeholders in these sectors. So the employers of the children or business owners, as well as parents and guardians and others, um, to understand the issue based on the lived experience of the children. So the program starts with a extensive life story collection and analysis project. And through that process, the children actually themselves do a causal analysis of their experience. So that builds a systemic picture of the issue of child labor. And then they decide what the intervention points are in the system. So where do they want to respond? And then they set up action research groups running across the two countries. And each of those groups is going through a process of action research of deciding on the specific issue, then collecting further evidence on that issue and developing a theory of change and thinking about how they take action to respond and then evaluating that action. We also work with other methods, other participatory inquiry methods around questions um, related to the supply chains, related to the, for example, the formal and informal dynamics, but also neighborhood dynamics and looking at kind of detailed understandings of the pathways of children in and out of these forms of work. And running through the whole program, as we described in the first episode, is an embedded participatory evaluation process. So one of the core aspects of the program is that it is about building evidence. So evidence about the issue, about how children end up in these forms of work, but also about how action research can be uh, an implementation modality and how action research can help us respond to complex problems such as child labor. I'm curious to know how the lightening of pandemic level policies or the removal of pandemic policies affected the project and where you're at now. It has had some fairly immediate effects alongside some of the funding cuts. We decided that we want that the most important thing was to focus on, um, on detail and depth and real deep participation. So we decided that we would run 13 action research groups in each country rather than 18. And part of that was the amount of time that it took during COVID to get to the level of depth that we needed to get to. So we've ended up with a, you know, what, what we think is still a very extensive program, but have taken some pragmatic decisions there. The other thing which is um, which flows out of COVID was that it really has taken us four or five years to get to this point where we are not, um, coming out the other side of um, nine, 10, 11, 12 months of action research for all of the groups. But ideally, we would have liked to have identified, you know, three or four groups in each country, and then looked at how the innovations that they've started to build could be scaled. And I think that would be a vision for a future program that we would still like to see as part of this sort of idea of how do you grow something systemic large scale, think about how it ripples out and opens up new spaces and sort of grows itself organically. So I think there are certainly some consequences of COVID which played out into the program. In terms of the program itself, we we have now been able to enact or support the inaction of 
um, 13 action research groups in each country. And then just to recap, you know, how we went about some of that, we had a very strong evidential starting point. So for eight out of those 13, they were started with these life stories, which are stories that the children tell about their own lives. And the important thing about those stories is that they aren't interviews, that they start with a prompt question, which just asks people to tell you know, their story. And by doing that, the children tell what's most important to them. So they haven't got a pre-constructed agenda. Um, whenever somebody tells a story, they tell what they want to tell. Now that tells us quite a lot then about their lives and what's important in their lives. And the story allows us to see the causalities and how they got there in a way that an interview doesn't. So eight out of the action research groups were started from the children analysing, co-analysing the 400 stories of their peers. So you're already, you're not building the action research groups just by saying, um, what should we discuss? Or are you interested in this? Or we're, we're working with them to understand what's going on and then to prioritise what's important. And then the second um, group of action research groups were started with business people. And I'll come to that in, in a moment because it's quite innovative in a sense. And there we did start with more conventional interviews and with uh, a more ethnographic process of shadowing some of those small businesses to really get a feel for how they work and to build relationships and build trust with the business owners. And then the third one was that we did um, GIS mapping um, and the children were involved in mapping the streets and identifying where the businesses were. And we also did a process called the Day in the Life, where 20 children in each country were tracked from the moment they woke up to the moment they came home and went to bed with GIS trackers. And they commented on their day as they went through. And so as we evolved that process... Um, you know, there's a lot of very detailed recording, which will turn into outputs of a different sort. But it was then used in dialogue through workshops to be able to create new action research groups. Now, that evidential base was quite important because it, it allowed us to challenge a lot of assumptions. And though the challenging of assumptions, I think, is quite critical to the starting point of these 13 action research groups. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. So one would be, you know, there's a dominant narrative within this whole world of employers as perpetrators. One of the things that came up very strongly from the stories was that often the employers were just one step up the ladder from the children themselves. They used to be those children. And five years on, they're offering jobs to other children and they're trying to help them um, to, to make their way to develop skills as well as trying to make a profit and so on. Now, understanding that opened up a completely new set of pathways for the programme because it meant that we could work in action research groups with those employers as the agents of change, as the leaders, as the champions to challenge worse forms of child labour. Now, that's really important because if you look at the wider policy environment, you know, the sort of the big policy, the regulation, the sort of the attempt to control what's going on by the state just doesn't work because you've basically got tens of thousands of small businesses in the informal economy, which theoretically doesn't exist. So who and how do you engage with that process? 
Well, by, by starting to challenge your thinking and your assumptions, you start to open up new avenues. So that would be an example. Another one which is related to that was that we realized very quickly through the shadowing process that the vast majority of these small informal businesses, both in Nepal and in um, Bangladesh, were actually supplying to the domestic market. So it's 120 million pairs of leather shoes that are going to Bangladeshi people, or it's the men who are using the sex industry in the middle of Kathmandu are Nepalis very often. Now that means that your levers for change in a conventional sense, corporate social responsibility, international government saying, if you don't do this, then we won't buy from your country, are completely irrelevant because there's no levers. So thinking those starting points through fresh helps you to get your action research groups to focus on the things that they actually know to be important. Um, I, just one other example would be, you know, in, in Nepal, your assumption, our assumption, is that the sex work starts in the dance bars or in the massage parlors and the sort of places that we associate with sex work. But actually, we're discovering that the vast majority of the children that come through that pathway start their lives, their working lives, in these small-scale eateries or you know places where you can get food called kajigar. And these are all networked in and in very complex relationships to the sex industry, to dance bars, to dories and traditional dance and so on. And understanding that complexity is critical to the start of the action research groups. So really, I'm just focusing on the first phase. We've opened up these action research groups, but we've done it on a very strong evidence of participatory and other type of research. And that sort of open, opens new doorways that wouldn't have been there if we just got a group of people together and said, what would you like to work on? And, and which raises an important question for us about you know, how different types of evidence inform where different action research groups go. And Marina, do you want to add or build on that in terms of filling out the picture? I, th I think that gives a nice picture of, of the starting point. I guess um, what where we are now is that uh, on the basis of these different ways of understanding potential entry points for action research groups to engage with different aspects of this the, the system dynamics that are influencing how children end up in and, and their experiences of child labor um, is that now we're what a year or so, or possibly even longer than a year into these groups now thinking through the specific issues and then beginning to take action. We've been recently actually having some conversations with the program, even just this morning about innovation. So we started off in Clarissa with the idea that action research as an intervention modality can lead to innovative solutions to these complex, wicked problems. We've been reflecting on what we mean by innovation and what we mean by it in relationship to participatory research and action research. And as Danny has mentioned, he's given examples of new understandings, which whether they're entirely novel, I don't know, but certainly have led us to different entry points into this uh, problem of child labor. 
And we're also seeing that within the groups themselves, the actions that they're starting to take are also, um, in some cases, providing different solutions or other ways of thinking about the problem. So the we're starting to actually have some fairly sort of evidence of how the actions that the groups are taking um, can potentially respond in ways that other interventions don't. I mean, one very simple example is that one of the groups is working on child marriage. Now, child marriage, you might say, is an issue lots of NGOs work on, right? It's not necessarily entirely novel. Um, but what the children were reflecting on, some of whom have had direct experience of child marriage, is um, that their response or their um, way of engaging with it was to create a narrative and to advocate around the message that child marriage leads to poverty. Whereas what most NGO interventions do is to say child marriage leads to death or health issues, right? So, so that's an example of how children actually reflecting on an issue from their own experience can create a different narrative and a different way to understand the issue and therefore a different way to respond to it. You know, this thing about exploring innovation, but not thinking that innovation is just one thing, that actually there are multiple ways in which innovation can emerge. At a, at a group level, at an aggregation of groups level, at the program level, um, in terms of the communication and advocacy and so on. And we were reflecting today on the fact that in a sense, what action research is trying to do is combine two things. One is co-generation and participation in a deep way to generate ideas and action. And the other is to, if you like, to create breakthroughs, maybe, of different sorts. They could be very localized breakthroughs, or they could actually be more systemic breakthroughs, but to create something new. And putting those two things together, I guess, is what we're trying to support in these processes. So this question of innovation is an interesting one, um, more generally, I think, for the action research field. One of the things I'm curious about, if you could address, is how did you maintain the level of participation amongst your stakeholders throughout this whole process of especially considering the amount of angles that you had to create and shift along the way since participation and collaboration is such a central idea when it comes to action research and working with communities to address wicked problems I mean, I think there's, there are two things that, are, that seem to be key. So the gathering, the people telling their stories, people listening to that process, people making sense collectively, that collective analysis of those stories, hearing things that are resonant with their own experiences, um, thinking about the meaning of that, combined with um, a trust building process, relationship building process, which is much longer than normal processes. You know, most projects like community development projects or international development projects, you've got to get straight into action. You know, the donors want to see you do stuff. What we've learned is that you need that combination of the ability to analyze your, for yourself, which creates ownership or leads to ownership, combined with a, a long phase of trust building. 
and relationship building. And that builds the motivation so that then people want to be there because they want to be there for themselves rather than because of what they think they can get from an NGO or they haven't got enough time because they're working. So why would I come to this group? Because they can see the potential pathways to change and they can see it's their process that nobody's really there to exploit them in, in some way. So I think for me, that's what holds the people in, in the space. But that's also part of what we're testing um, in the evaluation process. Yeah, and Adam, I know we can talk about evidence in other moments, but at the same time, that is actually a central question that we're trying to evidence in this program, is actually how is trust built? And how does participation work? And how can it be sustained? So we've had a, a, a quite an in-depth evaluation process using kind of a realist approach, which really gets into very detailed understanding of how things are working. And so that initial life story collection and analysis process that Danny was describing earlier, which was kind of the, the beginning of the action research processes, we had some really in-depth evaluation of how that worked. And what we found is that, that children really, when they started to share their stories, they felt comfortable, relieved, thankful, happy. It was often the first time anybody had actually asked them what their experience had been. So that definitely started to develop a sense of agency that created the motivation for some of them to then continue into the action research groups. But at that early stage, we didn't yet see them, if you like, what we describe as ownership in an action research group process, right? What we then see is when we move into analyzing the stories, then they get into this very in-depth process of actually unpacking the causal dynamics of their experiences and their peers' experiences. And this made them understand, and they reported, that they could see that they weren't alone, Yeah, that their story wasn't unique, that there were others who were experiencing similar dynamics. And through the process of making sense of them, this started to actually shift the way they understood their own experience, but the way they understood the issues as well. And that then motivated them to move into the action research group processes. And our evaluation of the action research group processes then illustrates through the different phases. So in terms of the trust building, exactly as Danny was saying, we have really good evidence that shows that what the participants are experiencing in this program is different to what other programs are doing. So they said, it's a longer term engagement. You're not pushing a program agenda on us. We actually have the opportunity to work on issues that are important to us, right? You're providing a platform for us to come together to understand each other's experiences. And so this idea of I'm not alone, it grows further through the process, yeah? And as the evaluation continues and as the groups continue, we're starting to see early indications of ownership building. But we found that for the children, that's been a harder process than for the employers. So Danny was mentioning the work with the business owners. We found that ownership and ability to move to action and to stay motivated and involved and engaged has been much higher with the employers. That's not surprising because the issue they're addressing is 
their livelihood. It is their business, right? And because as adults who have the opportunity to organize, etc., they have greater ability to create change in their own lives. But we are seeing that through time that builds with the children. So yeah, it's about the issues being related to their reality. It's about spending a lot of time. I think the other thing that's really important is this point about the capacity required to work in this way. And we talked in the first episode about the extensive capacity building process with the teams on the ground, learning how to facilitate, et cetera, and an ongoing mentoring process. So it used to be every couple of weeks now, once a month, Danny and I meet with the facilitation teams. And the question of how do I maintain motivation and participation is there in every single conversation. It doesn't go away. There is no sort of magic solution to that. I think the work in action research is to continue to reflect on that question and to continue to focus on how do you build that ownership, sustain it. It was a really pivotal moment for us to reflect more deeply on, for example, it's it's not sufficient to meet with the children in a dedicated space that's been agreed and for good reason, because it's safe for children to be there, et cetera, but actually getting out of the room and doing informal activities with the children was really important to move to another level of trust, to another level of building ownership. But that was something that required careful thinking through because of safeguarding issues, et cetera. But there was something in us as facilitators that was also not entirely comfortable with that. So I think continuing to build ownership and supporting participation in an action research group process is also about letting go, right? And thinking about how you move with the group instead of you controlling where the group goes. And that may seem obvious, but it's not easy to do. It's right? very tricky also in this wider context of safeguarding. So thinking about the institutional context that we're working in, where safeguarding of children becomes a sort of a very dominant narrative. It's a bit like ethics committees in universities or whatever, that it becomes quite hard to navigate. And when you're talking about some of the most vulnerable children in the world, because of what they're doing, the automatic institutional response is a safeguarding response. But of course, you can't just round up all these children and take them somewhere, quote, safe. This is their lives. So you have to have a sort of a different mindset as you work in these spaces with these children. And actually also trust that they're very good at negotiating and understanding risk in a way that probably most institutional professionals wouldn't have the remotest idea how to do in their own lives. But I think Marina's making some important points here, I think, about relevance and about the sort of the movement and the flow, which you were picking up earlier. I think another example for me is the work that we did on the day in the life of a child with, with the children, where we were walking alongside the children as they carried out the activities that they did in the day, starting from waking up and, you know, maybe doing some work in the home and then traveling to work and then doing their work, their work day um, and so on. One of the things that came up through that process, which I think, again, was about challenging fundamental assumptions, was that for many of the children, it wasn't the work, if you like, which the outside world sees as the most sort of uh, scary thing. These children are 
working 15, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. They're working with hazardous chemicals. They're working in the sex industry and so on. It wasn't that that most um, worried or frightened the children. It was their journey to work and their journey home where they felt unsafe, really vulnerable. And they could tell stories of children who had been harmed in those contexts. So understanding that meant that in their action research group, they could focus on that issue, which was the journey to work and the journey home. Whereas the natural place that uh, an NGO might focus is on the work, because that's obviously the thing that's the problem. So I think by turning those things on their head, children can see that the program is responding to what are their perceived needs, as opposed to what an NGO's perception of those needs might be. So... One of the things that I was hearing in this narrative that I think is is interesting and important, and I think that's worth further discussion, especially in relation to action research, is that you mentioned finding evidence about how to do these things. You also mentioned evidence about kind of the efficacy or the outcomes. And you also mentioned evidence that is more like the kind of traditional declarative knowledge about what's happening, you know, what's going on here. So what are the ways you're thinking about framing your knowledge and the knowledge creation process and and the evidence that you're gathering in this work? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's an ongoing discussion. So as I think we've said before that in this program, we've had to be very flexible and we've had to adapt and move both with what's emerging from the ground, but also what, as you know, the audience, if you like, um, needs. And so we've had kind of a definition of outputs of what we produce from the program at the beginning, and that has evolved. So we've had you know, sort of classic research outputs, um, which will then, you know, they get written up into, into research outputs and then move into sort of journal articles, et cetera, which is one audience. Um, and certainly Danny, myself, and the other kind of researchers on the program are focused a lot on that. But then there's all of the learning that is useful, as you say, to practitioners and to others engaged in these types of of programs. And we've actually started to think through a process to help share the practice learning, particularly in the kind of child labor programming, child protection sort of NGO worlds. And, And that requires, of course, much more engagement with the user. Right. So we can't assume that the way in which we package what emerges from the program is useful to others. So having a process that helps us to really understand what is needed and what is useful for others is is part of that. And then there is a whole stream of work around advocacy in the program. And so one of our partners, the Consortium of Street Children, is is leading on that. And that is both in terms of at the action research group level. So what actions are the children or business owners taking that are advocacy actions? And by that, we mean that they are actions that aim to influence decision makers or people who have decision-making power over their lives, all the way through to how do we engage with the UN processes or indeed UK parliamentary processes that are thinking about, about policies. And across all those levels, you know, different forms of advocacy. And one of the things that we've discussed a lot in the program is how do you sequence the use of evidence that emerges from a participatory program? So you can't plan the detailed advocacy for a program like this on day one, because by definition, what the program is going to work on should be driven by 
um, what emerges and what participants actually want to, <laughs> where the energy is, right? So that's an interesting challenge. And I think we've had an ongoing process with the advocacy and communication side of the program to keep evolving the strategy as we understand more about the issues. And then I think the final aspect of this is what the children and other participants themselves are sharing with each other and the way in which we can facilitate that across different parts of the system. There is something here about you know, the natural tendency for programs like this is to go straight to policymakers and create policy change. In fact, I mean, there are gaps in policy, so don't get us wrong there. If, you know, we see some which are writ large, like, you know, school age, the sort of statutory age of school ends at 11, but you're not allowed to work until you're 16. So what are the children going to do in that, that five-year period? Of course, they're going to work in the informal economy, which is unseen because there's nothing else for them to do so those policy gaps can be identified but they could be identified without an action research process there is good policy often often the crit the critical issue is how do you create sustainable change on the ground where policy isn't reaching so for example the idea of just modeling a way of working with small businesses and the way in which those small businesses can then form into associations. And then those associations can start to talk to other associations within the city and how that process builds out. It's not a piece of generalizable knowledge. We can't say if you do that with another group of business people in, you know, in Calcutta or Delhi or some other country, it's going to work the same way. But what you can do is say, you know, there are things we've learned about how to engage with small businesses, which worked in this way and this way and this way here. And you might be able to open up processes in other places. So there is a lot of transferable knowledge, even if it's not generalizable knowledge, um, which we want to put into lots of spaces. Um, some of that will put into other spaces and some of that will be transferred, if you like, project by project, piece by piece, by the business people to other business people to other business. But it's an idea, it's a different mindset, which can then move from place to place. So we need sort of different mechanisms for different sorts of learning. You know, we I talked earlier about, okay, we're realizing that there's a focus on domestic markets now here that we need to have. And that's a learning which needs to go into a lot of the larger NGOs and the ILOs of this world and the governments who are trying to create change by you know creating leverage on corporate brands when that's not actually where the problem is but to actually just simply to point out that isn't where the problem is you need to focus somewhere else is actually quite important learning that gets transferred at that level so we again we're talking about different sorts of outputs or different sorts of learnings coming into different sorts of spaces and at different sorts of levels I think one of the opportunities we have in embedding a kind of evaluation and learning process through and, and within the action research is the richness of what we understand. So you bring context with you always when you're understanding how these processes work. And that's very far from the sort of classic generalizability. But thankfully, even in the evaluation community, we're moving much more to transferability as being the core criteria. And action research, like a lot of qualitative and case-based kind of methods, really, really well-placed to do that. And the addition, I would say, for action research is that it does it from people's lived experience. And, and that's extremely powerful.
So if you want to understand what's transferable, you need that context. You need that information. Otherwise, the learning isn't useful. That's really interesting to consider this angle of transferability as a core tenet in action research based on lived experience. A couple of points that you've been making along the way that I wanted to circle back to you because it involves your role in all of this, right? We talk a lot in action research about action researcher positionality and our roles. I think it'd be really interesting for our listeners and myself too, to hear from you about your role and positionality in this and and particularly how it's changed or how you've had to adapt over the, what is it, five years that you've been going at this. You know, what really, what piqued my interest and what made me start thinking about that was when you were talking about the sort of advocacy that in theory would come next, or I guess in practice, um, policy change, do that. What does that mean for Danny and Marina as the sort of oversight and facilitators of this project, right? Where do you go from here with so many moving parts and all this incredible evidence that you've created through this process? What does that mean for you all? And how has that changed from the beginning? I think that that is an interesting question. And you know, what one of the things that we're grappling with is that we think that these processes do take time. And, you know, to get real systemic change, which scales up and scales out with that sort of accelerating sort of um, movement, which we would really envisage and imagine, I think is going to take 10 years. Um, Because it is very different to the model of projectized interventions, two years, three years, one year, four years, we go and do a bunch of stuff, then we disappear. And that's how international development works. It's not how international development should work. And we're trying to model a different way of doing things, not just in terms of what you do, but also around the sort of timescales and the sort of investment which it needs to create sustainable change. So that's the sort of point about the future, and we'll get to that. In terms of our role, I mean, I think for Marina and I, is that we, you know, we begin to realize that there is a role which is about the management of action research and the leadership and the direction of action research, which is different to being an action researcher. So we've spent our careers working as action researchers, building up the methods and the method. I think now we're in a role which is about how do you manage teams of people that are doing this stuff? And that raises a whole different set of questions. How do you keep a sort of a vision of the big picture, if you like, throughout all of this? How do you see the whole when you can't see all of the whole? But how do you know when you need to act? We talked in the last episode about how carefully we work on selecting the right people and, you know, how much time is built in for certain processes. And sometimes it's about holding a line on that, just believing in it and having the confidence to hold the space of uncertainty where people aren't sure that's going to work. Maybe that's where our experience comes in, in a sense, that you can just hold that space for people while they're working through their uncertainty. And you also might be uncertain, but you're more experienced at holding that space of uncertainty. I completely agree. A big part of it, I think, is the role of holding uncertainty. It's not glamorous. (laughs) It's not often talked about, but I think it is quite important. Just to add to what Danny was saying about moving from being a researcher to a manager of research, I think one of the benefits of having been, and I would say still being, an action researcher 
and then moving into the management of a large action research uh, program is that you do still value feeling, if you like, what it is, because it's it's not that you're going to sit down and read lots and lots and lots of documents and understand what's going on in a program. Um, that's helpful, but it's knowing when you dip in and when you dip out and knowing when you can actually really sense what's happening, which is about the relationships, but it's also about the content. And I think one of our biggest challenges, or certainly one of the biggest challenge challenges I experience, is it is finding that balance, finding the balance of understanding the details sufficiently well and being in the processes so that literally being in country not as often as we used to be, and that's a good thing for many reasons, but at the same time, being sufficiently connected and engaged to feel it. And I think that comes from having been part of many action research processes. You know, people ask, well, what leads to sustainable impact? What are the things that lead to long-term impact? And it's such a hard question, you know, but really where I've been, how I find myself responding to that question lately is that, frankly, it comes down to all the intangibles, you know, like spend time, be patient, break bread, you know, share a beer, have a chat, because you can go into these projects with a total agenda with a bullet point list of what we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to do this, we need to do that. And it creates this formal sort of tense atmosphere. But then it's always what comes after, right? Once you're like, all right, yeah, and then you're, <laughs> right. And, and then that's when really all the magic happens. So it, it, I think it's a really interesting and important point to make and something that I think we should examine further as an element of action research theory and methodology. And, I, and Adam, I think what often happens with larger projects is that they somehow flip into some other modality, like, oh, this is now too big to be managed in that way. All those things now don't matter. Now we need lots of spreadsheets and now we need lots of, you know, other management tools and the time it takes and, and not just the time, the emotional energy it takes to do that with more people is you know, it is larger, but I would agree. I think the core of it has to be the same. The big message in a way is that your modality for managing a project has to be congruent, you know, the modality for managing a participatory project has to be congruent with those participatory values. So you need a participatory management to go with your participatory process. But for this process, you need what we would call participatory adaptive management. What does that actually look like? What are the characteristics of that? Did we manage to get anywhere near that? Maybe, maybe not. You know, so, um, but I think that's the aspiration. I think it's probably a good place to hit pause for right now. This is a conversation we need to continue to have and share. Um, we've spoken off the air about um, continuing that conversation in a more structured way, um, perhaps bringing in some of the participants onto the pod to share their stories there's so much going on with this project, and I think it's really important that we're sharing it um, to people that care. And we talk about it through a practical lens as well as the theoretical lens and, and really get to the bottom of it. So thank you for coming on today. I look forward to coordinating subsequent episodes with you all and sharing your story with our listeners. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing it with our listeners. Thank you for having us. As we always. Look to the next time. Yeah, it was great um, talking with you. It's really, really informative. So thank you for that. And, uh, yeah. All right. We'll talk to you all soon.
how have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore ARPod or the Action Research Podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shika DeWalker, Corey Legasic, and Vanessa Gold.